You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We are nearing the end of a sermon series on failure. Next week is our last week. We're going to do a, a summary recap and be on our way out of this situation. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, feel free to send them. I will do my best to get them, and we can talk about them. Uh, the number is going to be in the bottom of the screen every time. I'm going to pull that app up just in case any come through. We can take a look at it. But we are talking about failure. We hate the failure. We don't want to remember our failures. We don't want to engage in failures. We try to avoid them at all costs. We spend a lot of time worrying about them because worrying, we think, can prevent pain and the pain of failure. And our theory is that we do this because failure is shame. It says something negative about us. We say something negative about us when we think we've failed. We think we're flawed. This is Carnegie Mellon, researcher on shame-based failure, and she says it feels like we're a bad person or we have some flaws or we have a defective self when we fail. But our premise is that failure is actually one of God's greatest tools for healing, for growth, for moving forward. And so we're looking at biblical failures so we can see how God responds, so we can know how God sees failure and addresses us in our failure. And today I want to talk about one of the most famous parables of all time, said for millions of years, Oh, to mil- I mean millions of years. For 2,000 years, to millions of people uh, have sought a lot of comfort in this. But I think there's some failure in here that we can identify with and see and then see what Jesus is doing. But before we get into the story, we got to talk about the context. Because a text without a context is a sure sign that you're being conned. If someone's just throwing Bible verses at you, you can make some Bible verses say whatever you want them to say. But what does Jesus mean by it? That's what we're getting at here. What does Jesus mean by this story? So we need the context. And so we're in Luke 15, and this story shows up a little bit later in 15, but the opening verses, that's the context. That's the situation that Jesus is speaking into. It says this, All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. And the religious elites, the Pharisees, and the legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. Jesus is going to tell them three parables, and it has to do all of them with lostness. And in, one of, in the middle of the parables, he adds this line. This is part of the context. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. That's the context for the parable that we're about to read. Jesus is eating dinner with people he shouldn't be eating dinner with. In this culture, table fellowship, who you ate with, said so much about who you were. If you were willing to associate with bad people, it's because you were a bad person. And Jesus says, let me tell you a couple stories about how God sees, about God's economy, about the thing God values. And so he tells a parable. And if you don't know, parable comes from two words, essentially. Parabalo. We get our word ball from that one. 
It's the verb to throw. Para means alongside. So when Jesus is doing a parable, he's taking an earthly story and he's throwing it alongside, throwing an earthly story alongside a heavenly reality so that we can catch a glimpse of glory. That's what he's doing. He's giving us an earthly metaphor for a heavenly reality. And so he's going to give us a parable about how God sees table fellowship, these politics, uh, sinners returning, religious elites. It's all going to be there. That's what these stories about. So we're going to read the story of the prodigal son, and just to tell you right off the bat, the father in the story represents God the Father. Spoiler alert. This is a But let's take a moment to read this. And we're going to read the whole thing before we get into our bad news and our head, heart, hands. Just let the story wash over you, maybe even in a new way. A certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me a share of, my, of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. It wasn't unheard of. This happened. But for the younger son to be demanding it, was it this was a shame to his father, for sure. Uh, but not unheard of. Just shaming his father. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together. He took a trip to a faraway land. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage, a famine arose in that country. We can't identify with that, right? It's not some supply chain issues going on here. He began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. If you know about the Jewish culture, pigs were something that you didn't touch or eat or were a part of. They were totally unclean. And yet here he is at the bottom feeding pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate. That's how hungry he was. But no one gave him anything because the Romans and the Greeks did not believe in charity at all, unlike the Jews. When he came to his senses, the phrase is when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? But I'm starving to death. I will get up. This is the turning point in the story. I will get up, he says. I will arise, is what the Greek says echoing these ideas of resurrection. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's going to practice the speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I no longer deserve to be called your son, but take me on as one of your hired men, your hired hands. And so he got up, he arose, and he went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and was moved with compassion, wealthy landowners do not run, especially ones shamed publicly by their youngest son. But this father has compassion. And so it says his father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. And the son who was practicing his speech began his speech, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I no longer to be, deserve to be called your son. And his father doesn't even let him finish the speech. He says, Bill, Whoever, go get the robe. John, grab a ring, the best robe. Put the, the ring of identity, the family ring, the family crest back on him. Get sandals for his feet. Fetch the fattened calf, the one that could feed scores, dozens at least. Lots of beef. I love it. Give me some beef. Lots and lots of beef, the one we've been saving for a party. We're celebrating. We're going to feast. Slaughter it. We're eating it. 
because the son of mine who was dead and has come back to life, he was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, coming in from the field. He approached the house and he heard the music and dancing and he called one of the servants over and he said, what's going on? And the servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound and the older brother was furious, angry, and he didn't want to enter in. Remember, table fellowship is so important. Refusing to eat with people also means something wildly important. But his father came out to him, too, and begged him. This man who was shamed, this man who runs, this man whose family is dishonoring and now is begging his older son, please come in. He says, he does not. He does not even call him father. He just says, look, I served you. I have served you all these years, and I've never disobeyed this, your instruction, yet you've never given me a party, not even a little goat. Yeah. That I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, not my brother, not dearest father, not going into the party, this son of yours returned gobbling up all of our estate on prostitutes and you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Last slide. His father said to him, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. What's the bad news What's the failure? I think it's a failure of vision to be sure. I think it's a failure of vision on both parts of the brothers. Both brothers fail to see their father entirely. They each have a partial vision of their father. For us, the parable is we have a partial vision of God, right? The first son, father, give me my share of the inheritance. He's, he's abusing his father as one who's there just to support him. And then when he wants to repent and come back, he fails to see his father as a father and he, and he wants to change his role to be a hired a man, a servant. He forgets that his father is his dad and he thinks of him mostly as the lord of this little piece of land. The older son, that's his failure from the beginning. What does he say to his father? What is the relationship with his father? He doesn't even call him father. He just says, I served you. Look right there, a failure of vision. My relationship with you is that I've served you and I've never disobeyed. The other one just says, Dad, give me the money. And this one says, Lord, I've only ever served you. They both have a partial vision about their father. A half true understanding of who their dad is. The younger son only sees the father as a dad who supports him. The older son only sees his father as a lord to serve. The younger abuses his sonship. The older refuses his sonship. 
They have partial pictures of who God is and it skews their relationship with their dad. One thinks he's a servant. One is abusive and takes advantage. They, their view of their father and what their father wants for them becomes skewed. Their identities become skewed. The whole relationship dynamic is out of whack. And I think this is the bad news for all of us. That when we only see God partially, we may miss out on God entirely. When you only see God partially, you may miss out on God entirely. This is true for me. I, I'll be, can I be real here? as the pastor, sometimes I don't understand prayer or how prayer works. I don't get to see what's going on when prayer happens. I don't understand it. Sometimes I don't see my prayers answered the way that I want to be. It does not encourage me to pray more. I want to pray more. Every time I read the saints or every time I read the history, they're prayers. These people are prayers. And this comes so hard for me because I don't see it well. I only see in part. And so I have a skewed view about what prayer is and how it works. And so I do it because I think I should. And I do it because I know that the people who are more mature than me say that it's good. But because I don't understand and I don't see it, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me. I think this might be true for you. I get to teach some sociology now, and of course this is going to start slipping into sermons, but there's this thing called the Thomas Theorem. And it's a super simple theory, super simple theory that says this. If one defines situations as real, they are real in their consequences. They don't have to be true. If you think they're true, you're going to live as if they're true. If you think your mom thinks you're dumb, you're going to live like you think your mom thinks you're dumb. She doesn't have to think you're dumb. She may not ever think that. That would be a horrible thing for a mom to think. They do think things like that, though, because they're people. <laughs> but if you think that, even if she thinks you're brilliant, but if you think that, that's real for you, and those consequences bear out. This is, this is something that goes on in sociology all the time. If you, whatever you perceive to be true about somebody's perception of you, you're going to uh, bear those consequences in your life and in that relationship. But how much more is that true about God? Whatever you think God thinks about you or whatever you think about God, whether you're right or not, is going to bear out in your life. I bring this quote out every two months. I think I just did it two months ago. But A.W. Tozer, he says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. The, mo the most portentous fact about any person is not what they at any given time may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. If you have a skewed image of God, then you are going to have a skewed image of yourself and the world. And I think the sons have a skewed image of their father. One sees him too much as daddy, and the other one sees him too much as lord or king. And because they've overemphasized those aspects of the father, they've underutilized and underemphasized aspects of their own identity. When we only see God partially, we may miss out on God entirely. What's the good news? That's a lot of bad news. <laughs> What's the good news? You know how we do good news here. Head, heart, hand, something for us to know. 
something for us to feel, experience, something for us to grow in personally. It's something for us to do with our hands. And what I'm taking away from, when I'm thinking about failure, when I'm thinking about the sons, when I'm thinking about partial views, the good news in this passage and in Jesus' life and ministry is that God might be incomprehensible, but God is certainly knowable. You will not ever comprehend all there is to know about God. But that doesn't mean God is a mystery entirely. There's no, there's, it doesn't mean that we can't know who God is or what God wants for us. You can't contain all there is to know, but you can certainly know God. This is why Jesus is telling parables. He's telling us about who God is. He's correcting thoughts and ideas about who God is. Again, parable. He's throwing an earthly story alongside a heavenly reality to let us catch a glimpse of glory. God is not unknowable. Jesus is telling us about God. How does Jesus know? Because Jesus is God. If you don't know, you heard it here first. Jesus says in John 14, If you have really known me, Jesus, you will also know the Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. God might be incomprehensible, but he is not unknowable. Jesus has revealed to us the character and nature of God because Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is. So what does God reveal to us, or what does Jesus reveal to us about God in this parable? That God is both Father and King, not either or, both. And we need a healthy balance of both. If you see God primarily as father, it is going to skew your relationship with God. If you see God primarily as king, someone to dictate and rule, something to obey and serve, and that's your primary metaphor, it is going to be skewed. You are going to have a skewed identity. You're going to have a skewed view about the world. Jesus wants you to know that God is both. God is both. Julianne gave us a verse last week, and I think it's helpful this week, that Peter tells us, that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge, right? God is knowable. We need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Jesus is both Savior and Lord, Father and King. Most of us love the Savior part. We get salvation. We get grace. We get love. Excellent. We struggle with the Lord part sometimes. I know lots of people who like Jesus as Savior and not so much as Lord. But some of us have a very lordship understanding and not a lot of Savior, thinking God is walking around with a stick ready to swack at first strike, right? You mess up. Or there's, I know people who spend a lot of time trying to make God proud. And so they want to obey and serve. And they forget about the grace and love found in our Savior. We need both. We need a vision. We need to see. We need to catch the glimpse that Jesus is trying to give us that God is both Father and King. That God is our Father and our Father is the King. We are welcomed as children of God, loved and accepted, and also God is on mission and there is things for us to do. It's both. I love movie trailers. Uh, because... I was never going to watch a Jurassic Park again. I'm pretty much done. I've seen it. I, I've seen the Jurassic Parks. So I'm like, I get it. 
Somebody keeps making dinosaurs and they keep getting out. I understand the premise. You think they would have learned after the first time. But money keeps that stuff going, doesn't it? But I was like, I'm not watching anymore. I'm done. And then I saw the trailer. And he's riding a horse next to dinosaurs. That's all I needed to see. I'm like, I'm in. When does it come out? I sent it to my friends. I was like, we're going, right? I was never going again. How cool. You're getting 10 seconds. I don't even think that's 10 seconds. That's three seconds. And you're like, I watched that. Maybe not. But (laughs) that's what I did. I love going to the movies partly because I love trailers. Trailers take these million-dollar, multi-million-dollar projects and they condense them down to two minutes to give you a glimpse of what the movie's about to get you to come back. I love movie trailers. I'm one of these guys that every movie I see is good. I don't really have, I don't have a discerning palate when it comes to movies. And trailers get me excited. They get me juiced about movies. That are, I would never in a million years, like if I saw a poster, be like, I'm going to go watch that. But I see a trailer and I want to go back. I enjoy movies very much. And I was just thinking about that because I think this is what Jesus is doing with parables. He is giving us a glimpse. He's boiling down. He's condensing this reality as best he can with the limited language that we have about earthly realities because he wants us to go deeper. He wants us to go all in. He wants us to... <laughs> Figure out what God is about and then be about it ourselves. Jesus is offering us the ability to go deeper in our knowledge of God, especially in this parable about God being both father and king. He wants us to learn from the failures of the sons in this parable so that we can see God as both father and king in our own life. What does God want us to feel or experience? How does God want us to grow personally, based on this information in the story. At least for me, I think what we are taking away is that God's tenderness is limitless. God's tenderness is limitless. God's compassion never fails. It is countless and continuous. Lamentations 3.22 tells us the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. The word mercy's there is compassion. It's the word for a womb, a mother's womb. This is the word for compassion in Hebrew. It's not mercies here, it's compassion. And the word for an end here is literally fail. God's compassion never fails. Jesus has sinners represented by the younger brother who abuses his father. Pharisees, represented by the older sons. The older son who's furious that Jesus is sitting there eating with these folks. And there's a debate about who's right. Who is on God's side? Who is revealing the truth about who God is? And Jesus says, while the son, the younger son, the sinning son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. I told you in the Hebrew, it's womb. It's mother's womb. In, in Greek, it's your guts. It's your spleen. We get the word spleen from it. Your guts are moved with compassion. There's an inner core of us that is moved. And this is what Jesus is revealing to us about who God is. Compassion. Compassion. 
that God is both Father and King, but God's first word to us is always Father. Always compassion. We see this even in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, Abba, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom, both Father and King, but Father is the first word. Compassion is the first word, literally, literally. Moses is on the mountain before the Lord, and Israel has already sinned with the golden calf. Moses already broke the divine tablets. He had to make some more, take them up the mountain. And God, this is where God reveals God's character in the most profound way. God wants to tell Israel who God is, and he tells Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, full of great loyalty and faithfulness. The first word that God uses in the Hebrew and in this English version that God uses to describe God's self is compassion, tenderness, slow to anger, compassion. Margaret Mead was a great anthropologist. Um, she studied all kinds of stuff uh, when it came to humanity and civilization. And this uh, doctor who was a Christian ended up writing a book, and he said he attended, um, he attended a lecture from her, and somebody asked, when does she think human civilization started? When does she think humanity began? What is the tools and the evidence? He said, is it pottery, maybe, some tools? Is it art? And famously, she says, at least it gets passed around the internet as famously. She said, for her, the first evidence of human civilization is a healed femur. Because a broken femur in the wild is a death sentence. It takes six weeks to heal. You are saber-toothed tiger meat or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> like, you're a meal for something. You're a sitting duck. You can't hunt. You can't gather. And so a healed femur is evidence that there are people who care. Compassion for her is the first evidence of humanity. Compassion is the first evidence. For Moses, compassion is the first word he receives about the character of God. And Jesus wants to tell us that God is both Father and King, but compassion is the first word that God speaks to us. So when it comes to who's in or who's out, who's right or who's wrong, who belongs, God's compassion invites us to come home. It's the first word spoken of who is in and who is out. Jesus wants to reveal a God who is compassionate, even to people who are broken and far away and who have fallen. What does God want us to do? What are we supposed to do with this passage? What are they doing? What's happening in the midst of all of this? You cannot read chapter 15 and not see the word celebrate happen seven or eight times. Over and over again, they celebrate. And so one of the things that Jesus reveals to us and wants us to do is that the more devout you are, the more faithful you are, the more partying you're going to do. And I hope that hits you in all the wrong ways, but the right way. Yeah. Jesus is accused of partying too much. 
wine-bibbing and partying with the people he shouldn't be with. And his argument is, you know what? John the Baptist was the most serious, masculine, quiet. I mean, he just wore animal clothes and he lived in the wilderness and you hated him too. And I'm hanging out and partying and you hated me too. And he says, guess what? Wisdom will be proved right by her children. He says, I don't care what you think. You'll figure this out. Partying is so important. The father, fetch the fattened calf, slaughter. We must celebrate. There's such an urgency to it. They began to celebrate. He was lost and he was found. We had to celebrate. In this passage, chapter 15, the other uh, parables, there's a, a sheep that is lost. And the shepherd goes and finds the one and leaves the 99. And when he gets back, he says, celebrate with me. There's a command. Celebrate with me because I found my lost sheep. And then Jesus tells a parable about how God is like a woman who lost a coin. And she has 10 of them, but one got lost. And she moves everything in her whole house to find it. And when she finally finds it, she says, celebrate with me. It's a command. Do this. I found my coin. And then... The father says, we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to. We were, it was an imperative. We were urged. It was something that was a necessity. You have to do it. Because Jesus tells us in the same way, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels. Over one who returns, the more faithful and devout you are, the more invitation uh, you have to celebrate, to party. Tony Campolo uh, is a Christian. He is a sociology professor. He wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. He tells a story. He's in Honolulu. He flew there from the East Coast. He says, you know what happens when you fly from the East Coast to Honolulu is you get jet lag. He says, so I woke up about 2.30 in the morning looking for something to eat. He said, it was hard to find something to eat, but I found this greasy diner up this alley. And he said, I sat down, and this guy walked over to him, and he said, what do you want? And he said, I just want some coffee and a donut. And he said, the guy poured him some coffee, and then the guy went to grab a donut, and he went, grab the donut. (laughs) Put his cigar down, he said, grab the donut. And they said, and then about 15 minutes after that, uh, this group of prostitutes walked in, probably about eight of them. And he said, there weren't any booths. You just all sat at the counter. And so he said he was sitting in the middle, and they gathered to each side of him. And one of them, he said, ended up being named Agnes, told her friends, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. And they chimed back, well, happy birthday. What do you want us to do, throw you a party? And she said, I I never had a party before, but I just want you thought you all would want to know. Tony said, after a half hour or so, they all left. And he said, what came over him was this idea to throw her a party, even though he didn't know her. He'd only been there one night. So he called the diner owner over, and he said, hey, let's throw a party for Agnes. What do you think? And they said, this is one of the best ideas we've ever heard. Because based on her profession, you wouldn't think much of her, but she actually has a really kind soul, and she doesn't get a lot of support. And Tony said, well, can I go buy some streamers? And, and they said, decorate to your heart's content. And he says, they come every night, right? And they said, every night, 3 o'clock. And he says, well, can I get a cake? And the diner owner said, I'm making the cake. That's my thing. And he's like, I just remember him. 
So the next night they decorated. He said the next night word got out to all the community of prostitutes and the surrounding region and the place was packed. He said the whole troop walked in and as they walked in everyone yelled surprise and Agnes began to cry. And they sat down, she sat down and they brought the cake over to her and it was lit with candles and they asked her to blow it out and she was crying too hard to blow them out. And then the diner owner says, I, the diner owner blows it out. And then he hands her a knife and says, cut your cake. And, and she says, I don't, I don't want to, is it okay if I don't cut it? And Tony says, he said, it's your, it's your cake. And she said, I want to, I want to take it home and show my mom. And so she leaves her party with her cake. <laughs> Tony, Tony said, it got real quiet. No one knew what to do. So he said, I said, can we pray? And everyone said, I guess. <laughs> and so he said he prayed. He prayed for Agnes. He said he prayed that she would be healed from all the ways that people had hurt her, that led her to the place where she was. He said when he got done praying, the diner owner said, you told me you were a professor and you sound an awful lot like a pastor. What kind of church do you go to, pastor? And he said he was just trying to make a joke and kind of cut some of the tension and be a little witty, but he said, I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. And the diner owner said, no, you don't. Because if that kind of church existed, I'd belong to it. Jesus invites us to celebrate. Jesus is inviting us to a table that has people at it that we don't like or wouldn't want to associate with, that would be beneath our status, would be beneath our comfort level to enjoy. And yet that's the thrust of this whole passage. If you read it in context, it's about an invitation to a table. It ends with the father inviting the older brother to the, to the party, but it doesn't tell us whether or not the brother responds. The parable has comforted millions as God's compassionate invitation to come home, and I want you to hold on to that as much as you can. But equally important, I think it's Jesus' invitation to the Pharisees, to the religious, to those who have been in the church forever to see and celebrate God's compassion for those who are far off and to join the celebration of heaven when people return. Celebrating with broken people is a radical declaration about who God really is and what God is really up to in the world. I'll end with this. Top five favorite scholars is this guy named Joel B. Green, and he ends his commentary on this story asking these questions. Will the religious elite with God sit with sinners at the same table? Will they accept as family those whom God has already accepted? Or will they refuse to belong, refuse to participate in the celebration? The parable is open-ended. And so is the invitation. What does God want us to know in this story? That God might be incomprehensible, but God is certainly knowable. 
God is not so mysterious that we can't know the wills and ways and character of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. What God wants us to experience inside of our own souls and hearts is that God is tender, that God is compassionate, and that tenderness is limitless. What God wants us to do with this story is celebrate, is to party, is to sit at the table with all those people that we would feel uncomfortable with as they return and take steps to Jesus, to gather around a table as one family that God has already accepted as a people belonging wholly to him, and let us party alongside heaven with sheep who have returned and coins that have been found and sons who have come home. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this story. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your reminder that you are both king and father, and your compassion reigns over your relationship with us. May we experience your compassion. May we experience the invitation to come home. May we experience your goodness to us while constantly balancing that you are our king and you are on a mission to redeem all of creation and we have a role to play in that as well. Let us to see your divine economy, your values, the ways that you're working in the world. Let us see people with your eyes, the ones that the world tells us we should hate, whether it's politics or whether it's class or whether it's prejudice, whatever it is, would you break down those barriers in our heart that we would accept the folks that you've accepted and that we would see as siblings the children you are calling home? And when all of that began at this table that you've called all of us to, this bread and this cup where you promised to meet us, it is not our celebration. It is not our banquet. It is yours, and you've invited all of us equally to participate at this table. So, Father, as we come, would you meet us? Would you extend that compassion? And would you help us to go out into the world full of that compassion and love that you have for us and for all? Table Church, will you continue the prayer with me by saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.